This is a Broad Pods production. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Good morning and welcome to Broad Radio and my co-host today joining me is Zoe Daniel. Hi there Zoe. Hey Joe. It's lovely to see you. My name is Joe Stanley. I should introduce myself. It's our 20th <laughs> episode Zoe. Woohoo! I know my goodness yes. I should have streamers and balloons and really just to a large degree, I feel like I need to lie down, but it is very <laughs> exciting to be bringing you our 20th episode. Coming up on the show today, we get the lowdown on the federal budget and what's in it for women when we chat with Danielle Wood, who's the CEO of the Grattan Institute and President of Economic Society of Australia and co-founder of Women in Economics Network highly qualified woman to speak about this. We also learn about a gorgeous Melbourne event called Better Off Said, eulogies for the living and the dead when the, one of the creators of the event, the brilliant screenwriter and writer Marie Hardy joins us. And we continue to work with Morris Blackburn Lawyers, bringing you information about your rights. And this morning, we're going to be speaking about abuse law. And particularly if you are a survivor of institutional abuse, what avenues are available to you for compensation. So Zoe, it is lovely to have you with us on this 20th episode. Remember I sent you a crazy email out of the blue we'd never even met when I said I've got this madcap idea that I thought we might do this thing called Broad Radio that's for women by women. I'm so glad that you answered my email. And I said, great cause, let's do it. Bring it on. Oh, bring it on. It is really exciting that we continue on and we have great plans and do stay tuned for more plans as we further get further into the year. If you are watching on YouTube, we'd love it if you like and subscribe to us. If you are watching on Facebook, it'd be awesome if you also liked and followed us. Um, of course, we love it when you comment and join the conversation throughout the whole show today. So you can do that on Facebook and YouTube. Um, you can catch up later to our podcast, Broad Radio On The Go, which is available wherever you hear your podcasts. And we do love it when you join our More To Say poll. This is a one question poll that we run every week. And in the last week, Zoe, we've been asking, well, the question was, the weather is getting colder and how far do you drop your sartorial standards as it gets colder? And uh, the suggestion was some people don't. They wear discreet, pretty thermals and stylish coats. 23% of our audience said that. 16% said, no shame, I will wear my onesies and slippers to the shops. 
just like those two. Uh, and the majority, 61%, say no, no, no. Uggs and Audis are just for inside the house. I will tell you which camp I've dropped fall into there in a moment, Zoe, but which would you fall into? Well, Joe, I mean, I have several things to say about this. The first <laughs> is that living in the US for several years changed my perspective on Ugg boots because previously I was very much in the Ugg boots are only for inside the house camp. But in the United States, Ugg boots are a fashion statement. So people wear them around outside which was kind of a source of family humour. Every time we saw someone walking around in Uggs, we would point and laugh. But during the lockdown last year, I was definitely guilty of walking down to the local cafe in my Ugg boots, tracksuit pants and a beanie. Mm -hmm. And the other morning, now this is spilt over because the other morning, it so happens that my daughter was giving a speech at school and I did contemplate going to the assembly in my Ugg boots and trackies oh. or at the very least my active wear because I thought, well, you know, multitasking, I'll just wear the active wear and then I'll go for a run after. But I thought, no, no, probably better to play it safe and at least put a pair of jeans on, which I did. And I was, But I was driving there and I saw a woman farewelling her children on the street on the main road in her Ugg boots and dressing gown <laughs> and I thought I applaud you but then when I actually got to the assembly being a parent of one of the speech giving children I was called on to stand up in front oh. of the group and I had that moment of thank God I got dressed and <laughs> I didn't come <laughs> in my Uggs active wear or a combination of that oh my god mm. so and i'm sure your daughter too very <laughs> grateful that you got dressed well i fall very much in the 16 percent. i have absolutely no shame and to the disgrace of my daughter last night i did pick her up from drama rehearsal at like nine o'clock last night in the dead of winter cold it's not even winter but it feels like it is in melbourne you know, and I was in Ugg boots and a dressing gown and she was so deeply embarrassed. And I'm like, you know what, I just don't care anymore. And I think maybe it is, it's a bit of a spillover from lockdown, but I potentially did it before lockdown and certainly I'm embracing it now because I just am too old to give a shit. <laughs> I've hit this age. <laughs> Zoe, I was told that you get to an age where you just don't care about what people think anymore. And I think I've, I've just gloriously entered this this beautiful time of my life well one thing that I thought was positive Joe, was that my daughter told my husband off for collecting her from some sport training or another in jeans and a pair of thongs <laughs> because that was embarrassing but apparently I'm allowed to do that so there's there's okay. a reverse gender um Thing going on there where jeans and thongs are okay for mum but not dad okay that so is figure that out interesting um that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well you know i i would suggest you embrace it that's um that's what your daughter is telling you so now this week's question um is a little more serious and we are asking uh we can get it up on the screen there ro um we're asking the federal budget promised more focus on what women need what is most important to you? So we've got a whole bunch of choices there. More accessible childcare, super, superannuation reform, secure housing, employment in middle to senior years, ending violence against women, women's health, 
and aged care reform. There's a lot of choices there and there's so many things to be done. Um, and it's hard to choose which is the priority out of that list. Uh, what are your thoughts there, Zoe? Well, it depends if I'm choosing for me or if I'm choosing for society because, you know, there are things on that list that would apply directly to, to me in regard to superannuation specifically. Um, but I think I'd have to say violence against women and secure housing um, are critically important and also for the broader advancement of our society, access to childcare is really key. And that's not, and this is something we'll be talking about in a few minutes, that's not a women's issue. Mm -hmm. That's a social issue, that's a family issue. Yeah. So yeah, it's, hard, it's a hard choice um, to pick one from that list because there's a lot of important stuff there. It is really hard. We encourage you to head along and pick one um, and uh, simply by entering our more to say poll you go into the uh, running to win a beautiful love your hands pack from Saba Organics uh, one of the world's only certified 100% certified organic skincare range but I think the issue um, Zoe is that they are so interconnected that's why it's so hard to choose mm -hmm. because of course mm -hmm. Um, women are facing homelessness to a large degree because of violence against women. But also women fear escaping violence in their home because perhaps superannuation and, and whatever is set up for them in their old age is not there. Like there's so much that's interconnected around that. And um, I sort of feel like wouldn't that require a strategy, a, like, you know, an actual overarching strategy from our government to really sort of have some kind of vision how they're going to handle all of these issues going into the future? Well, yeah, and COVID actually provides an opportunity because of the disruption that it's caused to implement some visionary policy and to push some structural change, which we haven't seen perhaps in several of these areas in recent history. So I say, yes, um, choose the structural change and really push hard into uh, making a difference in regard to especially childcare and superannuation. And as you say, if you provide that security and stability for women um, and, you know, single mums obviously rely on childcare as well, mm. as well as superannuation. And then that flows through into what happens in retirement in terms of being able to enjoy life as a person who's retired, who's, you know, worked hard all their life or, the opportunity to be able to enjoy their retirement. So as you say, they are very interconnected. Mm. Well, you and I, Zoe, could ruminate for hours about the budget and what it means for women, but uh, I would rather have someone far more qualified than I to meet you in this conversation, mm -hmm. Zoe. So I'm really pleased to welcome to the show Danielle Wood, who's the CEO of the Grattan Institute. She's also president of Economic Society of Australia and co-founder of Women in Economics Network. What a powerhouse you are. It's lovely to have you on Broad Radio. Thank you so much for having me, ladies. <laughs> So, Danielle, the budget was an opportunity for the government to demonstrate their willingness to respond, I think, to the many myriad of inequalities that women face in Australia, um, whether that's at home or at work or whether it's security for them. Um, did this budget do that, do you think? Look, I think it was a step in the right direction and it was certainly a much 
bigger and more comprehensive commitment than we've we've seen in recent years. So um, there were some things around women's workforce participation and particularly the childcare package that that you just mentioned. Um, There was a package around um, women's safety and and a response to family violence. but the other thing that sometimes missed, I think there was the um, investment overall in, in the care economy. Um, so things like aged care, childcare, mental health, you know, those really important care services um, matter because a lot of women are employed in those sectors, uh, but also obviously a lot of women are, are beneficiaries of those services. So look, I think um, it was a step change, I would put it that way, in the government's attitude to, to funding things that really do matter for women. Uh, but it probably wasn't the revolution that a lot of people were calling for. Danielle, is it appropriate to put childcare in the women's column in the budget? Look, I'm actually a little bit more forgiving of this than a lot of people. So. Um, Obviously, childcare is a, is a family issue. It's not a women-specific issue. Um, but what we do know is it has the biggest impact on women's workforce participation. So when we look at the choices that families make, um, they tend to have a primary... So the most common model in Australia is a primary earner working full-time, um, a secondary earner working part-time, and that secondary earner, and I hate the term, but um, it, it tends to be the woman and they're the ones that flex their hours to kind of manage that care responsibility. So when you make childcare more affordable for families, um, you do actually get a much bigger impact on women's workforce participation. So I think that's why they put it as a women's issue. And I actually, I see it as a really important issue for women's economic security in the long term. Um, but, you know, wouldn't it be nice to eventually live in a world where we're not talking about it as a women's issue anymore? I mean, I think that's where we should be shooting for in the long run to really recognise, um, you know, children, um, you know, often have, have two parents and, and, you know, they should both equally be involved in thinking about how to care for that child. Um, I was really pleased to hear you mention single parents before. Um, you know, they are some of the most disadvantaged groups and, um, you know, so I would really like to have a conversation about how we address issues for them. But childcare cost is one important lever for, for helping single parents um, move out of poverty. Uh, yes, I was raised by a single mother. And let me tell you, still now, single parents always seem to fall through the cracks. I remember my mum talking about it when I was a child. And still now they are overlooked repeatedly. Yeah, and interesting. So coming out of COVID, um, you know, we saw that COVID recession hit women particularly hard, but particularly single parents. I mean, when you, you know, move to homeschooling, shut down childcare centres as they did in Victoria, um, you know, single parents don't have someone to help um, juggle that load, particularly when, um, you know, you've cut off contact from extended family that might otherwise help out. So um, even though we've seen participation rates jump back up for, for other groups of workers. Um, it's still well down for single parents coming out of COVID. And I think that's, um, you know, really dreadful long tail effect from this recession. And there, there wasn't much actually to, to help single parents specifically in this budget. And before we move on to other elements of the budget, is, is the childcare package though all it's cracked up to be? Because we're, you know, we're hearing we're not, it's not going to be implemented until next year. And is it actually all it promises to be? Look, again, I would say certainly not revolutionary. Um, so it, it's $1.7 billion over three years. Um, to, to give you a sense of scale, you know, it's about a third of what 
Labor is proposing in terms of investment um, into the the childcare subsidy about a, a quarter of what I had been calling for and, and saying that you know was needed as a first step. Um, so you know the government has sort of tried to to keep spending quite targeted. Um, on the bright side, you know, if you are going to contain the amount you spend, um, they have targeted the families that do face the highest out-of-pocket costs. Um, so childcare is really expensive in this country right across the board, but where it really, really bites is for those families that have two or more children in under six in care, so long daycare or family daycare. That's where you get those astronomical out-of-pocket costs. And, you know, our, our work certainly shows, you know, given those costs, it's just often not worth it for, for the second earner who tends to be the woman, as I said, you know, going beyond three days a week work. So reducing those costs is a good thing. Uh, I would have liked to see them to go a lot bolder and reach a lot more families with the package. Danielle, what about the superannuation component in regard to paid parental leave, which is, it seems to me that if, whether it be uh, an LNP or Labor government, if either of them addressed that single issue, that would make a huge difference to um, both equality in the workforce, but also decreasing the wage gap and boosting superannuation for women in retirement if super was paid on paid parental leave what's the big mental block for successive governments in regard to resolving that yeah i actually thought they would move on that in this budget i thought given you know the focus on women that would be a pretty um no-brainer <laughs> type move um it's not um terribly expensive. Uh, so if we're just talking about the government component of paid parental leave at the moment, they offer um, 18 weeks at minimum wage. Um, so you're putting the, the superannuation contribution on top of that. Uh, it's not going to be a game changer for women in retirement. So our estimates suggest, you know, it's probably up to an extra $300 a year. Um, if, if women go through two sets of paid parental leave and they get that government contribution on, on top of that, um, once they get to, to 65, that's the next 300 a year, but, you know, certainly not to be sneezed at and, you know, important for bringing down that gap. Um, but what we have said, though, if you look at older women that are in retirement already, um, you know, that group that you were talking about that, that are really struggling, if you want to help them right now, um, what you should be doing is actually increasing the rate of rent assistance. So the, the older people that are really under pressure, are older women on the pension that don't own their own home. Um, rent assistance has not kept pace with the cost of housing. Um, so if you want to bring, bring that group out of poverty right now, um, bumping up rent assistance by 40% is going to increase the income for that group of over $1,000 a year. And you know that's what we really need to see is in an immediate step on, on helping older women that are already there. Um, then we start talking about these super things to try and actually um, you know, prevent this happening again and, and boost incomes for women into the future in retirement. And there was... So if you talked about COVID, sorry, Joe, I just you wanted go. to follow yeah. that up, but it, it, if you talked about COVID as an opportunity for structural change, um, what about these sort of more big picture ideas like allowing 20-year leases, for example, on rental properties to give older women and uh, single parents and such that security. I mean, we see it happen in the Northern Hemisphere. Why can't we as 
thinkers, why can't policymakers, why can't governments start blue skying some of these issues to achieve that structural shift? Yeah, I think those sort of ideas around um, tenants' rights are incredibly important. And, um, you know, we used to think of ourselves as a nation of, of homeowners, but given what's happened to house prices relative to incomes over the past 20 years, we, we just know that that's not the case anymore. Um, home ownership is out of reach now for, for so many people. Um, so we need to start actually building in um, safety nets and protections for, for tenants, which will be, the, you know, the norm going forward. Um, so I think there is an important piece, Zoe, around um, tenants' rights. There has been some movement in some states. So in Victoria, um, they've just sort of shifted things a bit to shift the balance away from landlords to, towards tenants. But you're right, things like um, security of tenure um, should be discussed because, you know, that idea that, you know, people can be bounced from house to house every year, um, you know, it's incredibly disruptive, it's incredibly expensive and it leaves people very vulnerable. And there was provision in this budget for uh, some kind of contribution to housing. I can't remember exactly what I read. So there was a package for single parents to uh -huh. um, be able to um, purchase a house with only a 2% deposit with the government kind of effectively going, going guarantor um, on the other component. Um, you know, great uh, for, for single parents that are in the financial position to be able to take advantage of that. But, you know, as we were just saying before, um, you know, a, a lot, you know, the vast majority are actually uh, on government supports and that's not going to be an option for them. Mm. So um, critically, I think at the top of the list must be women's safety and prevention of family violence. What was included in the budget around those issues? It was a sort of an overall package, 1.1 billion over the four years. So there was um, a number of different messages. Um, so there was some direct supports um, for, for women escaping family violence in terms of cash supports and accommodation services. Um, there was additional money for the legal system. Um, there was some money around sort of capturing data, particularly around um, family violence for Aboriginal women. Um, so there was a whole series of measures in place. Uh, it was a significant step up in funding compared to what we've seen in, in past budgets. And I think that does need to be um, recognised and, and applauded. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but um, I have seen many people that are saying, you know, that some of those more direct supports um, could have gone further and it actually won't be enough um, to deal with the number of women that are, that are, you know, perhaps looking to get out of violent relationships. Danielle, you seem to be not as critical as some have been of this budget. I'm curious what you think of the term pinkwash, which is something that's been put about um, to describe, you know, what was marketed ahead of uh, it being delivered as a pink budget uh, and then in the aftermath has been described as pinkwash, suggesting that it, it's much less than it should have been once, once you scratched the surface. What are your thoughts on that? Look, I, I'm into mine. So, I, I mean, I think there has been a substantial shift and we should recognise that. Um, so, you know, where the government previously, I mean, I was extremely critical of the October budget, I should say. Um, that was a very blokey budget. It basically invested all the recovery money into manufacturing, uh, infrastructure, 
there was very little there for the, the hard hit services sectors and for the care economy, which is you know, really important going forward. So I think we have seen a fundamental shift and we should recognise that. Um, but, you know, I also absolutely hear those criticisms. Uh, as I said, you know, childcare didn't go anywhere near as far as I would have liked to see. I think, um, you know, the, the family violence campaigners talking about the fact that that is not enough to address the problem on the scale that we face is very true. And the graphic that you just put up, I think, um, you know, highlighted some of the areas where um, you know, you, you look at the budget as a statement of the government's priorities and, and you think, well, goodness me, um, you know, uh, mm -hmm. is that the right priority to be investing that much in, in gambling tax breaks over um, women's health? But, you know, I think we should recognise that there has been a shift. Um, this is a base and we should continue to, to push for government to go further in these really important areas. And I guess that that was my concluding question to you, Danielle. And uh, I do thank uh, Gender Equity Victoria for that graphic that really just puts into perspective the percentage of spending on women's issues um, in comparison to other things in the budget, 57.6 million to family violence services for First Nations women and then that extraordinary amount for military training facilities. You know, it really sort of sends a message, I guess. Um, but that's my question to you, Danielle. What, what can we do now to continue pushing the government to do more? Well, I think women's voices have been really prominent in the past year. So, I mean, it, there was, you know, the fact that COVID hit women particularly hard, as I said, both on an employment front, but also on a caring front. Um, we had the very strong reaction to the October budget. Um, we've had all the discussion about treatment of women in Parliament, led by Brittany Higgins and, and some of the female journalists. Uh, and all of that, I think, has actually led to this momentum. Um, so, yes, it's it's not what we, you know, everything we ask for, but goodness me, that's been a shift. Um, and I think that shows that women's voices can actually put a lot of political pressure on government to act. Um, so I would just say, you know, to all the women that have been empowered to speak up and um, congratulations, I would say as well, to all the female economists that have been talking about these issues um, that didn't used to have much of a voice in the media. It's been fantastic to see um, and kind of really led the charge around the last budget. Um, you know, all of those different groups coming together has been a real force. It's shifted the conversation. It has led to action and I, and I think it can continue to do so. Well, thank you so much, Danielle Wood, CEO of the Graduate Institute. I agree with you. We must continue to just keep fighting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Broad Radio today. We'll have more Broad Radio after this. So, Zoe, here's a question for you. How are you at speaking your mind? Uh, people who know me well, Joe, will say I'm very good at that. <laughs> uh, but sometimes a little bit too direct. Gets ah, me into trouble occasionally. Because okay. mm. I, I have to say that I'm someone who has been fearful to speak my mind my whole life. I'm very bad at it which would suggest that I've got a lot that I'm sitting on. But <laughs> I don't know if I'm, I'm necessarily good at actually saying it in a, in a way that is palatable. Maybe that's your problem too, Zoe. Yeah, not a lot of subtlety. It's just, <laughs> it just comes out sometimes badly. Well, this is why I've been instantly drawn to an event in Melbourne. It's called Better Off Said Eulogies for the Living and the Dead. It's such a gorgeous spoken word event. It's created by two of my favourite writers and creative women, Marie Hardy and Emily Zoe Baker. And I'm really thrilled that Marie Hardy is joining us now. Hi, Marie. Hi. 
It's so lovely to see you. Tell me about Better Off Said. Um, what kinds of things are unsaid and that we hear in these beautiful events? Oh, gosh, there's so much, isn't there? And I guess based on what you were saying, there's so much that we, well, some of us carry within us and maybe need to talk to our therapist about. Joe, not telling you how to live your life, but don't sit on that stuff. You're going to die. Like, get, get these things out. And I think that's what Emily and I are both really interested in making artwork that, that reminds people that living is an impermanent experience. We are in a finite experience. Being alive is a gift. And I really acknowledge that it's a privilege for two white cisgender women to be able to ruminate in that space somewhat whimsically. Um, so I think when I'm reminded every day that I'm going to die, it makes me think about what is left unsaid and who I need to say things to, who I need to clear things with. And that was really the germination of this event. So Emily and I started this event in the quote unquote before times, November 2019, um, as a way to make a spoken word event which gave people the capacity to heal and find catharsis and connection and realise that all of us carry well, some of us, not all of us, some of us are blunt, hammer force, open word speakers. All of us carry things that we wish that we'd said. And so that was really what inspired us to start the event. Marie, what's it been like actually seeing and hearing those stories come out? Does it feel kind of powerful and empowering at the same time to release people to say what they're holding? Well, that's really what we're interested in. I mean, I'm a screenwriter. Emily's a poet by trade. Uh, neither of us have kids. I chose not to have kids. So it is important for me, if I may be earnest for just a moment, to put things into the world that do create that connection and empathy and capacity for people to heal and that don't centre me and Emily. Like it's, it gives other people the capacity to be in that space and we are kind of curators and presenters and yeah it's been a, we did three shows before the virus shut everything down and even in that space every show has four readers who read a piece about the words I wish I'd said um, and at our first show Charlie Pickering talked about wishing that he'd told his grandmother that she was the reason that he was funny that he'd never thanked her for giving him the gift of comedy um, but we also have at every show someone who delivers a living eulogy and we invite that person to eulogise someone or something that is still with us. And Aunty Lou Bennett in our first show eulogised the Jabberwung birthing trees. Uh, at our second show, Jan Fran eulogised Scott Morrison's career, which was <laughs> very interesting. So they can be funny and beautiful, but we also have one of our readers who I won't name because I'd like to protect them in this moment, but her mother had recently been diagnosed with cancer and she eulogised her mother who was not in the room at that space but said all the things that she wanted to say and it was an incredibly moving, beautiful experience and I think that very healing for her to be able to air that. So that is really what we're interested in this show, not kind of emotional exploitation but in giving people the chance to, to reach out and be held. You mentioned catharsis and that sense of... I don't know, freeing whatever happens when you say the words that have been in you. So what does that then mean it does to us if we don't say these words? Look, Joe. I mean, obviously I ruminate upon this a great deal and I lost uh, a dear friend last year during the pandemic um, who was an ex-lover of mine and had to watch his funeral on Zoom, as many of us did last year. And I remember looking at his coffin on Zoom and thinking, we were clear We'd said everything we needed. We'd said, I'm sorry, I forgive you, I love you. And that was a really 
comforting thing in a way to be able to look at that and think that person died even though very suddenly and tragically and I wish he was still with us I felt like I'd said everything that I needed to say to him and it really motivated me to look at other relationships in my life that needed those things said I thought if I die tomorrow or these people die tomorrow what am I going to regret not saying which is which is often I'm sorry and I love you and I forgive you in both directions but there are some people that it's not safe for us to say those things to. There are some things we do have to carry on our own. It's not always, it's not always healthy for us to, to vocalise the things that need to be said, you know. I think, you know, if you examine yourself, you know in your bones. I'm sure even having this conversation, you've both thought about people, it, whether it's an estranged friend or a family member. I mean, I have an estranged family member who it's not safe for me to reconnect with and they are words that I need to process on my own. And that's lovely as well. I just think having the time to reflect upon it in any way is a real gift. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about where the boundaries are. You know, it's set me thinking about things that perhaps happen to people, you know, traumatic things that people hold in and then they're incapable of talking about it for sometimes decades afterwards. You know, how to address those sorts of things when, as you said, talking to the responsible person or recounting the event may not be the healthiest approach, but perhaps getting it out in some way still remains important. Yeah, it's not the healthiest or safest. And I guess we also have to examine what our expectations are. And often, not just related to trauma, it can be, you know, a heartbreak or anything. The person that we air our words to might not always say back what we want to hear. Our healing is our own to carry. And there's a reason I think a lot of therapeutic process talks about writing letters that you don't send. Because you're getting those things out maybe to the person who it's not safe to send them to, but you release them, you don't carry them. It is about, we carry these little bags of rocks from our family, from our past, from our history and they're a heavy weight to carry where being alive is hard so how can we do our own work to release them so I think the event is partly motivated by that you know we want everyone to be living as light an existence as possible in a very dark and complex time so if there's any ever a moment where you get to think about letting something go what a gift that is too I think too Marie though we've seen such extraordinary courage this year alone uh, from Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame and all of the movement that's come from those, just those two women and let alone every other woman and, uh, uh, you know, victim survivors that have come out from that, uh, those two moments, the great courage of speaking out and also the power of how those words and one person speaking their truth can have. It's amazing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I guess on the flip side, you know, consistently trying to keep it safe for survivors when it doesn't feel right for them to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, I never want it to, like those women are astounding. Oh my God, watching Grace Tame speak in public is just like watching a fireball with a microphone in front of them. She is just amazing. Um, and you never want it to feel like it's the only thing to do is to speak up. Like the safe thing to do is just to consistently reassess with yourself. What do I need to say? What feels right to me? How can I express that in a safe manner? And I guess that's why when we brief our readers for Better Off Said, we really open it up to you can be funny, you can be raw, you can be political, you can be... And that's what we really enjoy about the show is that it's not five people going, Dad, 
I've got this thing to say to you. It's really, it's really nice and varied, which I think otherwise would make for probably a quite harrowing afternoon and our bar tab would be quite high as everyone's like, oh. So, yeah, I mean, words, words unsaid can be funny as much as anything else. Oh, you know what I did say, which I can't ever take back, is that I was once introduced to Patty Smith and she said, how are you? And I said, food. Did I mean fine? Did I mean good? No one will ever know. I went for both. And she gave me a very withering look and walked away, which is probably all I deserve. So some words you can't take back. So you have to be very careful about that. Good. I mean, honestly. Some, some words are best never said. <laughs> Only, see, this is the beautiful thing. All life's journeys are very personal and individual. Only you know the things that you're holding on to that you will feel lighter letting go and the ones that it's safe for you to keep and process on your own. So mm. it's it's yours to reflect upon. And who have you got joining you in this upcoming event on the 6th of June? Well, it's so exciting, Jo. I mean, having been in Melbourne lockdown for three months, I'm still not taking for granted that we are in live events again and the Melbourne Comedy Festival happened and I went to see a cover band called Rock Addicts play in Wollongong last week. They were amazing. They played rock covers. They were these guys in their 60s. I'm like, this is cool. So this is our first event back since March last year. So we feel really lucky and loving and and happy to be doing this. So we've got Denise Scott, who is amazing, obviously, comedy legend, Mm -hmm. Enfar Jones, um, Sam Johnson and Janelle De Silva, who are all doing the words I wish I'd said. And our living eulogy is going to be performed uh, performed by Senator Lydia Thorpe, which is going to be amazing. Mm. And then we have a musical performance by Mama Alto, who will really kind of hold the room. We try and put some music at the end of it to just bring, bring people together in a lovely, safe hug through the ears. Yeah, because I can imagine that you can only but hear all of these truths that people are sharing and then think about your own that you're holding on to. So I imagine people leave sort of really quite um, raw at times. Jo, you did Women of Letters, which is Mm. the show I used to co-curate and co-produce. And that was really the intention of that as well, which is sometimes you saw this very famous person on the stage and they were speaking about something that you'd experienced. And you went, oh, that's how I felt when my parent died or... That's how I felt when I had a breakup and understanding that the human experience, though it's very nuanced for different people, there's a universality to it and it does teach us about how to empathise with each other. So that is very much the intention of understanding that we're all here together, we're alive at the same time temporarily and the more we can understand each other's pain and sadness and hurt and joy, the kinder we can be to each other. Amazing. If you are in Melbourne, head along to this incredible event, Better Off Said, Sunday 6th of June. Uh, the tickets are at Brunswick, brunswickballroom.com.au. Are you doing any fancy screening of it, like a virtual screening? No, we, we're recording, <laughs> making an audio recording and thinking about podcasting because as well, yeah. if someone wants to speak in a very open way, we don't want to exploit that. So that's why you need to come to the live events because yeah. it might never happen again. But we are doing the monthly, where it's the first Sunday of every month. So if you can't get to the June show, the next one is on July 4th and August 1st and so on, so on, etc. Beautiful. Marie Cardi, gorgeous to see you. Thanks so much for being on Broad Radio today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'll have more Broad Radio after this. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, we've been working with Morris Blackburn Lawyers ever since we launched Broad Radio at the start of this year, bringing you information about your rights. And today we're talking about abuse law. So we did want to warn viewers and listeners that some of this content may be distressing. But we really felt that this was an important conversation, partly because we want victim survivors to understand that you may be eligible for compensation, but equally as importantly, for victim survivors to understand that when it's time for you to speak, you can speak with a lawyer freely and safely. Your voice matters. We heard when Grace Tame said, it is up to us as a community, as a country, to create a space, a national movement where survivors feel supported and free to share their truths. So today we welcome Michelle James, National Head of Abuse Law at Morris Blackburn Lawyers, and Jenny Atherton, who is a client at Morris Blackburn and an abuse survivor. Michelle and Jenny, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to start by asking you, Michelle, um, we're talking about abuse law and specifically institutional abuse. Can you explain to us what that means? Yeah, institutional abuse is where there's an institution sort of sitting behind a perpetrator that perhaps made it easy for the perpetrator to carry out their abuse. So examples of institutions could be schools, sporting clubs, churches, other religious institutions, and so on. So it's really where there's a a broader organisational framework that um, can permit or enable the abuse to occur. And it also includes people who may have been wards of the state. Absolutely. Yeah, so in in the case of a, a ward of the state, the state is the institution. So we tend to think of institutions as being sort of a building, but it's really more helpful in the context of abuse to think of them really as an organisation or a framework um, and very much it can include the state for, for those children who were wards of the state when their abuse occurred. So what kinds of avenues are available for compensation, compensation or restitution um, for people who experience this abuse, um, institutional abuse, I should say? There are a number of avenues. Um, If the perpetrator has been criminally prosecuted, then there can be avenues around um, victims of crime compensation. There's also a redress scheme that's available. But the work that I do is all in the area of bringing a civil legal claim. And that's where you bring a claim against the institution in which the abuse occurred that you say was responsible for enabling or allowing the abuse to occur. And Jenny, I know that you went down the path of a civil legal claim. Why was that? 
I think because the perpetrator um, had already deceased, because I already had family support, it was easy for me when the option became available or the offer was there. So that was a, a kickstart for me. So, Michelle, when we're making a civil legal claim, who are we making that claim to? So we made the claim against the institution that we say was responsible. Um, and sometimes sitting behind that institution, there can be an insurance company that may be actually responsible for paying the damages. Um, but other times it could be the institution itself that pays the damages. So really, if a person is abused when they're awarded the state, to use that as an example, we would bring a claim against the state responsible for looking after that child while they were uh, awarded. But then we may also bring a claim against the particular institution in which the abuse occurred. So as an example, if a child was a ward of the state, but living in a home run by a church institution such as uh, the Anglicans or the Salvation Army, a claim would be brought against that institution, but also against the state. So if someone was fearful of actually starting this process because they imagine that they're going to have to appear in court, they're going to have to tell their stories, they may face a perpetrator, is this correct? Is this what actually happens? Look, if you're bringing a civil claim, the possibility of going to court is always there. But I would say that in my experience, very, very few claims ever go to court. Sometimes you have to start a court case. Um, but um, very rarely would those cases end in a trial. It is possible, though. In terms of facing the perpetrator, very, very unlikely. This is not a civil, uh, sorry, not a criminal procedure. So it's not um, where the, the state is bringing criminal charges against a perpetrator, and you very much have to go and prove beyond reasonable doubt that what you say happened happened. It's instead a claim against the institution. And so where matters do go to court, they really tend to be around particular issues of relating to the evidence or the assessment of the damages themselves, rather than needing to face a perpetrator. But in terms of telling the story, that is a part of a civil claim, and it's actually a very important part. And what the people that I act for, that my team acts for, tell us is that telling the story, even if that can be um, somewhat painful in the short term is actually a very important part of being heard, of having a voice mm -hmm. and ultimately starting that journey towards um, feeling better about uh, the abuse and reaching some sort of closure. Jenny, what was it like for you to tell your story? Um, um, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't expecting like the, the opportunity for, for that arise to, yeah, to, to have to tell my story but then I found with the support, and I guess the first person I met besides the admin here was um, Jed, and um, he just made me feel so relaxed and comfortable and and uh, mentally prepared for the whole yeah, um, progress to start. So that made it a lot easier for me to, to share with a stranger, if that makes any sense. Um, and um, and I also found he was they were very willing to, to just allow me to be me, and that's what just sort of brought that um, just a relaxed state of mind that, you know, um, they're here to help me, um, there to be the voice, like I said before, and also just re reassuring that, okay, so I, I just felt safe, even though I didn't know them. It's weird to feel safe around people I've met before, but I just felt safe, I felt comfortable. And um, and I guess knowing, because growing up as a young, after all the abuse, I left time at the age of 17, so as well, I met my husband back at age three, um, I, it didn't. It thought it was like all cut off and finishes. Okay, that's the end of it. But then they still had those recurring, you know, mind thoughts of um, the, the anger, the frustration, and 
like, you know, a fear, mostly fear, mostly fear. Yeah, but they're just meeting up with Morris and Blackburn. Um, it just made me feel comfortable to speak about it. I didn't have to feel like, I, you know, I, I wasn't important. Oh, you know, Worth came back in. Worth came back, wow, this is a voice that I wish, wish that I had or knew someone before Morris and Blackburn that could just speak out and say, hey, this girl's been harmed or hurt. Is she going to be recompensated? She's going to be, um, um, yeah, helped or whatever. Yeah, so, like, you just move on in life thinking, okay, because no one's going to help you. Why bother trying to bring it up or, you know, seek, um, I wouldn't say vengeance, but just seek, seek help, I guess, yeah. But uh, Morris and Blackburn, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention their names, but I will. Hi, Jed. <laughs> yeah, that Jed Nakunawa, he was, all I could think was he was just like an uncle or a brother. Yeah. And that's, that's what made it so easy, very easy. I didn't, there was no distance when I came in. What did it feel like for you to finally to be able to share what happened to you? Was that a real weight off your shoulders? Yeah, it was, it was. But I wasn't constantly reminded of it because I'm surrounded by family 24-7. So my focus was, okay, my, my life's finished, the hurt and the suffering, that's all finished. Now I've got to... Um, still in my children or in my family a sense of self-worth belonging um confidence yeah so so having to come and share my story with like i said with strangers um i think it would have been hard if i didn't have a good family support background it would have been difficult and hard because of what i would really would have already lacked the self-confidence needed to come and speak to someone outside of my my family my husband my children yeah, so no, um, I, I thought it was a, a weight lifted um, and it sure is today. I mean, I could talk about it really today. Um, the, the thoughts sometimes, they're, they're, they come back, but the, the feelings of anger and frustration and fear are no longer attached to those thoughts. So I guess it's with the release and the confidence therefore came in to, to tell my story. Yeah, and I've since this, actually, I need to apologise, since Morris and Blackburn, since my story was uncovered um, through my choice to do that, I now share my testimony with um, other women um, at church, at home, fellowship, wherever we, because I'm in the church, um, in in the church network here, and I see now it's funny. It's like when you buy a new car, and you and you don't realise how many cars are exactly like yours on the highway. It was like that. Now telling my story and having to you know hold my head up now, not to cower. I find that man, it's nearly every second lady that I meet has had some sort of a, you know, a, a drama happen in their lives. And I thought maybe I've had, to, I'm the forerunner, gone ahead, told my story. And now because I'm like not really well, experienced, do I have the right sort of to um, help? And I just spoke to um, three mothers on Sunday who are now going through that. And because they've, they've got the voice, like I had the voice, they don't feel shame to share this story with me because they know they're going to get help. Why would you share your story if you're not going to get any positive results after? It'd be a waste of time. Yeah, so that's how I looked at it. And unselfishly, I'm glad. It may not have been good what happened to me, but what happened to me is good for others, if that makes any sense, because now I can help them. And Michelle, I know that your lawyers are specially trained uh, in this kind of work. Can you explain to us exactly what that means? Yeah. Um, it's so lovely to hear Jenny talk about her story and how she felt once she finally did. But here at Morris Blackburn, we take the care of both our clients and our staff um, incredibly seriously. Um, it can be traumatising for a survivor to share their story. 
and they need to feel that they're doing so in a safe space, in a space where they're going to be supported, that the person hearing the story um, is going to respond in an appropriate way and so on. And at the other side, listening to people's stories can be very traumatising for the lawyer concerned. And so Morris Blackburn ensures that all of our staff who work in this space have received um, very specialised trauma-informed care and practice training. And that does two things. It helps to be able to deal with the survivor in the most um, compassionate and appropriate way to make sure that they're not re-traumatised. But it also assists them to, um, to be able to look after themselves, to look for warning signs when the work, the nature of the work and the telling of the stories and the hearing of the stories is perhaps taking a bit of a toll on the individual lawyer. So it's something that we take very seriously. And it's great to hear people like Jenny um, talk about how they felt when they told their story, how supported they felt, because it makes me feel like we've got that right. And can you tell me, Michelle, what is the response that you've observed when you have a survivor come and share their story? What does that do for them? Generally, when a person comes to talk to them, they often tell us afterwards what a weight has been lifted, that they finally told their story to somebody who is absolutely on their side, um, who will you know, take down those details, those details that sometimes they've kept hidden for decades, mm-hmm. and that the details that they've divulged and shared that they've told will go on then to assist them to, to sort of seek some recompense. And at the other end of the process, when we achieve a settlement for somebody, I've been in a room where it has quite literally looked like a weight has been lifted off somebody's shoulders, where you can see that a person feels that that they've been carrying, uh, that the, the trauma that they've suffered, it never goes away. And I don't want to appear trite and suggest that a monetary settlement could ever do that. But their hurt has been recognised in a very meaningful, tangible way that will make a difference to their future, to their future, is incredibly powerful to witness as a lawyer. And what kind of shift are we seeing, do you think, in our society in general and our community, just by the fact that we're having these conversations more openly? There have been fierce and tireless advocates in this space for decades. Um, But we now see a world in which the Australian of the Year is a survivor of child sex abuse using her trauma to tell a story and change the conversation. What I feel is that now more than ever, understand that what happened to them as children wasn't their fault, mm-hmm. that it's not a weight that they have to carry along and that they, they do have options that they can come and speak about. Well, thank you so much, Jenny, for sharing your story. And Michelle, thanks for enlightening us. It's been great to speak with you this morning. Thanks, Jo. Thank you, Jo. Well, it's been so lovely to share this show with you this morning, Zoe, and we can't let the show end without congratulating Lauren Jackson, who has been named in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in America. She's the first Australian to be named in that Hall of Fame. And what an amazing achievement. What a powerhouse Lauren Jackson is. I mean... This woman, you know, played in the US WNBA for more than 10 years, captain Australia, took Australia to a World Cup, 
several Olympics and now named uh, in the Hall of Fame alongside Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant and all of those, you know, absolute superstars. It is just such a, a wonderful achievement but more so just fantastic recognition of this extraordinary not only sports person joe but just human like she is just a great person yeah absolutely and and she's been i read yesterday people saying she's australia's greatest ever basketballer but she's got to be one of our greatest ever athletes absolutely and you know to be recognized in the hall of fame in you know the world of u.s basketball i mean having lived in the states and being force-fed basketball by my son for several years you know this is it this is a whole culture and industry made up of incredible athletes and you know to be to have sat at the top of that for so long in her career with seattle you know several times mvp in the women's um, national league in the united states it's just pretty extraordinary actually and you know it's the kind of recognition for an australian athlete that's quite rare i think like people should really recognize this as kind of you know the pinnacle of sporting achievement really Mm. And I, I know that she did acknowledge all of the players that she's played with and her coaches and everyone who's mm. assisted her over the many years of her career. But as a mum who drags myself along to my daughter's basketball game every week and sits side of court in what feels like a bit of a punish sometimes, I also acknowledge her parents because there's a lot of sitting by the court scoring that they would have done over the years. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, at least with basketball, Joe, you're not standing out in the freezing cold, sleeting rain and snow. So, you know, upsides. But I bet they drove through, I bet they drove through sleet and snow, you know, in the early mornings and the late nights to get her there. But, you know, her mum and dad must be so proud because when she's been interviewed about this, she's just been so incredibly humble and you know really handed off the reasons for her success to all of those around her who supported her um, and her teammates and her coaches through the years and it just says a lot about her as a person that that success has not gone to her head at all it would Mm. appear yes well Mm. yes so congratulations to lauren jackson and let me acknowledge you in the sleet and the snow and wherever you stand (laughs) side of a footy field or a pitch (laughs) with with your uh, beautiful kids it's it is it's a fair commitment yep all those parents who are standing out on melbourne winter mornings in the torrential icy rain i i salute you and i wish you good coffee (laughs) (laughs) that's right oh speaking of which it's time we both had our morning coffee thank you so much for uh spending the last hour with me zoe always a pleasure joe thank you and we'll have more broad radio next week Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 